You're listening to Experts in Their Field, a podcast from the Agricultural Science Association, generously sponsored by Ulster Bank. Hello, listeners. My name is Anne-Marie Butler, and I'm the president of the Agricultural Science Association. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode six in our podcast series, Experts in Their Field. Council member Odile Evans was delighted to catch up with North Kilkenny native John Muldowney. From a mixed family farm, John details his most interesting career path, from a certificate in agricultural science in Waterford IT to the successful completion of his degree and master's in agriculture from UCD. John subsequently joined the Department of Agriculture and has progressed his career with positions in Johnstown Castle, Brussels and now Agricultural Attaché based in London. John offers an open and honest insight to his career journey the challenge of climate change, food security and the need for economic and social balance. We wish John and his family every good wish for their exciting new chapter in London. Uh, Hi John, Uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, all the way from London. Um, You have a very interesting uh, career to date and we're delighted to have you on at the ASA podcast as our sixth podcast. So for those who don't know John Muldowney, could you maybe just give a little bit about your background and and what led you into agricultural science? Okay, hi everyone and good afternoon. Um, It's a damp evening here in London, but I suppose my background to agriculture, yeah, well, I grew up on a family farm, a mixed um, suckler beef and sheep farm. So again, that was a great insight to everything in rural life in North County, Kilkenny. And uh, then I suppose on leaving school out of Johnson Vocational School, I went on to, I suppose, the roundabout way to go to college or university. So I went down to Waterford IT at the time to study agricultural science certificate. I got on well within that and then moved on into second year of the UCD bachelor's degree in agriculture. And I guess within that, then I chose the environmental science stream of the degree and enjoyed it very much. Some very good lectures that provided a lot of inspiration moving on. Um, I went on and done a master's then and went straight into the, the Department of Agriculture at that time. And your master's, am I right in saying, is quite um, focused on the environment as well? It was a very environmentally focused master's? It was indeed, yeah. So I was lucky enough to to get, a, I guess, a small scholarship of uh, the veterinary college to look at uh, the influence of earthworm populations on badger numbers in certain areas in County Kilkenny. Again, trying to see was food availability, i.e. the earthworms, influencing the populations of badgers. Um, I suppose at the end of all the work, I found out that Kilkenny was very fertile soils. So there was lots of earthworms and lots of badgers. So it was more to do with the habitat of the badger in terms of where they were sleeping at night rather than anything else. Okay, so that was a two-year study, was it? Uh, yeah, a year and a half. So, you know, a sampling season and then write it up afterwards. But again, it was very interesting to get involved in that and, just, you know, to see what was happening in the earthworm world, I guess. And Within it, I was even lucky enough that I identified a, a previously unidentified species in Ireland. It was a, a French species that was found along the River Barrow. Um, so again, got a, a nice research paper out of that. So it was something unique. So again, it was the observation when you're out in the field to keep an eye on everything and you'd be surprised what you'll come across. 
a really good grounding, I suppose, to start off with. Um, and can you tell me then why you uh, went into the Department of Agriculture? Was it something that had always been on your radar or did it just an opportunity arise? Yeah, I suppose um, overall, I'd say when I was going through college, you know, and wanting to study within agriculture, my big interest was uh, was agricultural production. And I could see that the environment was sort of coming high on the agenda. So it was always, it was farm advisory, I'd say, was maybe my first calling. But then uh, the opportunity, um, there was some colleagues that joined our final year degree class were from the Department of Agriculture. Uh, that had um, got a, a master's course that they were doing and some of their classes crossed with ours. So it gave me a bit of an insight to what the Department of Agriculture was at at the time. And uh, again, I was fortunate enough that a competition came up very shortly um, as I was finishing my master's degree. So I applied for that and was lucky enough to, to get onto the panel and get, get into the Department of Agriculture. And is that the same system as there is for panels now, where you apply for a panel and you get offered a job, um, depending on you know the next person on the panel? Is it the same system? Yeah, well, I guess uh, maybe mine was a little bit uh, more dated than that. So it's more, you know, you're numbered on your panel. But again, it was, sorry, your first calling was up to Ag House. And it was when you went into Ag House, you were told where you were going. Now, I know some colleagues that started around me, they had a little bit more insight to where they were going. But... I went up to Dublin and was sent straight down to Johnson Castle in Wexford um, that afternoon mm-hmm. to meet um, my new boss at the time. Um, so I was going down to a biodiversity unit that was being established within the Department of Agriculture. Again, there were, again that ecology side was becoming more prominent in how to feed into agri-environment schemes at the time. Okay, so you were involved then in reps in Johnstown as well, am I right? Yeah, so that was my first insight. So I went, I went down to this biodiversity unit. The big core function was inputting into the design and implementation of biodiversity elements of reps at the time. So again, it was a headquartered role, so I was very fortunate in that sense. I also had a very good tutor at the time. My uh, boss at the time was uh, Frank Rath, God rest him. And uh, yeah, we had an interesting time in, I suppose, the scale up of reps two at the time that achieved, I think, over 60,000 participants rolling into reps three and reps four. Yeah, so I was involved in it for quite some time in terms of that evolution from what was the original farm based scheme of 11 measures to what became, I guess, an options where you done all the options in terms of on farm. So it was an interesting time and a good insight into how policy developed in terms of moving from the biodiversity or environmental priorities that were there to translating that into something that was practical at field level and getting approval to the European Commission in terms of what we were doing and what we were spending money on at the time. But I mean, 60,000 people in, in a scheme like that, I mean, that's bigger than, than GLOSS is now. Why do you think, like from your perspective from working in the department, why do you think REPS was so successful? I guess it was the simplicity at the time. It was a whole farm. It was just that 11 measures, and that got a lot of traction and credibility in terms of what it was doing. But I guess as time moved on, the standard, you know, lifted, lifted in terms of what was required in that baseline, and that required the department to move on as well in terms of what the scheme was about. You know, so you moved from a whole farm approach, a shallow green scheme, we'll say, the one that had some options, 
with very little specificity maybe to the gloss now that it's all options and you choose it. And I guess there's some interest now when you move on to more results-based and how do you balance that with ensuring that you get high uptake. So it's something that has been evolving over the last 25 years. It's, you know, it's hard to believe that agri-environment has become so embedded in terms of paying for public good. And it will evolve some more, I guess, in the next round of CAP as well. Absolutely. It is the the key focus, isn't it? You know, all the uh, green schemes and even Pillar 1 payments being directed towards those kinds of measures as well. That's exactly it. And again, like it was interesting that when I started my certificate in agriculture back in 94, you know, the first soundings of an interest in agri-environment were there. And I guess it was probably the early days of Reps 1 were happening when I was starting college at the time. And that was what my ear picked up in terms of what was going to become more important. I don't ever think at the time when I was considering it that it was going to become as big or as central to how farmers need, I suppose, a license to farm now in terms of those environmental credentials, as well as the animal welfare credentials, you know, to sell our produce. Um, so I suppose back to your career path um, from working in reps, what was your next step before you got to um, uh, agricultural inspector, I suppose? Yeah, well, I suppose at the time, a lot of the, the work down in Johnstown, you know, was keeping your head to the ground, paying attention to what, what my bosses and colleagues were doing as well. You'd be surprised what you learn off them how they interact with stakeholders, with the different work streams that are within the Department of Agriculture, you know, from the very policy orientated divisions to the ones that are more implementation or financial management, keeping an eye on what they are doing and trying to draw together, I suppose, your promotion CV, move on to Ag Inspector. And again, you know, the standard is high within the Department of Agriculture. It, it took me a number of times to jump to the next level, but I suppose I learned something new each time I done that interview and eventually got promoted in 2012. I moved on to Agricultural Inspector and again, was lucky enough to get to stay in that environmental field. Um, so my next task was within climate action. And again, that was a very, I suppose, low priority area maybe in 2012 when I joined. But again, the prominence of that grew over recent years to where we have it today. Yeah, it's a role that has really evolved, I guess. And I suppose the team numbers in that area have evolved as well. Oh, yeah, they have. I suppose even from when I started, like the, they've probably quadrupled within the division in terms of, the, I suppose, the expertise that's in it and trying to service engagements with our own Department of Climate Action and uh, European issues as they arise, as well as the international issues as they come through and trying to ensure that Irish agriculture is represented in all those discussions in terms of what's happening and what's feasible in terms of emissions reductions while still maintaining food productivity. And it's trying to get that balance right is often the difficult one. So you would have been involved in the likes of the Paris Climate Change Agreement talks, uh, is that correct? Yeah, that was along the pathway there. So 2015, there was quite a bit of work le leading into that. Um, so I suppose within the Paris climate talks, agriculture was very much, it was a parallel discussion item, but yet it was a very important item that was in the framework of the articles of the Paris Agreement. So within Article 2 of the Paris Agreement, the ensuring food production is not threatened is, is there as it was in the original 
1992, um, UNFCCC, um, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, you know, again, that food security, quite, I suppose, the prominence and importance of that is there and has been maintained throughout. It's not to say that agriculture and land use are not important in terms of contributing to trying to reduce emissions, but it's equally, it's how do you ensure that food production systems are protected as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, it had to have been a really interesting perspective to have on on the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, from seeing it from those, those talks from from the ground up, um, would, you would have, certainly have a different perspective maybe to someone reading the headlines on it. Yeah, and I guess it's always as well when you look across the world in the different countries, you know, for developing countries, agriculture is their number one emission. You know, potentially it's 80% of more of their national emissions. So, of course, it was going to be important there. And for, I guess, the less developed countries, again, the poorest to the poor that are out there, you know, again, agriculture is the only thing that's happening and ensuring that they have food security is critical as we move forward. So, again, I guess from that perspective, it was always going to be important as well as trying to reduce the overall emissions. Paris Agreement was also, it was very interesting as well in terms of how it evolved the dynamic of that political framework, you know, from one where the Kyoto Protocol was all about reducing emissions relative to a baseline of 1990, whereas the Paris Agreement was very forward-looking. It was setting a, a temperature goal objective that global warming should not exceed anything more than two degrees, and if anything, we should pursue efforts to try and limit temperature rise to no more than one and a half degrees. You know, and that's in the context of temperature rises already one degree. So the door being really ambitious within that. It was also very ambitious in the sense that it did, didn't create a distinction between wealthy countries and poorer countries. Everyone was expected to put in a pledge to the Paris Agreement to say what they can contribute or what their needs were in trying to contribute to the, um, the Paris Accord. So it really did move from a position where there was you know, a handful of wealthy countries involved in reducing emissions to one where there's now, I think, over 190 countries have pledges in the Paris Agreement. So it really was groundbreaking. I guess um, us talking today uh, happens to be the day that Joe Biden is uh, being inaugurated um, as president of the United States. And like since, um, you know, the last four years have been quite tumultuous in terms of um, Donald Trump's uh, time as president and his commitment to climate change targets. Do you think we will see a massive change now um, in the overall commitment from, from the US on, on climate change? Yeah, there's always going to be a change, I think, now that there is a new administration going in place. And, you know, it will be good to see him back rejoining um, the Paris Agreement. Now, again, it was quite ironic that just as Biden was being elected, the which withdrawal of the US was being, I suppose, sanctioned, you know, because it takes a little bit of time for the processes to acknowledge that you are leaving. So now the whole process of rejoining will start from, but um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they engage with it. I guess the interesting one, you know, when going to the conferences on climate change since the uh, Trump was in office, it was interesting that the private sector took a leading role in illustrating the presence and interest of the US in reducing emissions, that they would have maintained a very significant presence in terms of 
as well as the promotion of what the US can do, even though their negotiators would have been doing something different in terms of when you'd be in any of the negotiation rooms that were going on. Yeah, I suppose there's a very savvy consumer base nowadays that are looking for companies to have that commitment to um, reducing their GHG emissions. And just coming back to Ireland and our greenhouse gas emissions, I mean, um, I think agriculture was responsible for 35% um, of Ireland's GHG emissions in, in 2019. Like, where do you see that going now, you know, from, from having that um, uh, insight in, in the climate change side of the department? What do you think are the key things that will um, influence change among farming? Yeah, well, sure. I suppose, like overall, we're lucky that Chagas have done a marginal abatement cost curve of all the technologies that are presently available that can help to reduce emissions. You know, so big effort needs to be put into how do we mobilize those actions, either through incentives or regulation, or maybe market standards is another avenue possibly on that to consider. So there's a suite of, I think, something like 25 different actions across reducing ag emissions of methane and nitrous oxide, but also land use change in terms of carbon removals, you know, biological carbon removals, and how do we mobilize that action? So there's a lot of options there that you can do in the near term. The Climate Action Plan that was published in 2019 sets out that agriculture has to re- reduce its emissions by 10 to 15 percent by 2030. And I guess that's against growth ambitions for the sector as well. So, you know, there's quite quite an amount of work that needs to be done to ensure we achieve that. And I suppose maybe one thing that is important to realize, it's not just the target for 2030 to reduce the emissions. There's a, a line of sight to 2030. So if you're not a sort of starting to hit a pathway that allows you to form a glide path of achieving emissions 10 to 15% lower, you start to build up a wave of non-compliance that will be almost impossible to comply with. You know, I guess Origin Green in terms of that business interest in ensuring the carbon footprint of food is low is important and it's how do we mobilize that faster and quicker than heretofore to ensure that absolute emissions are, are decreasing from agriculture. Yeah, and I guess the other thing to challenge challenge on that is, you know, not just getting the engagement um from the farming side of things and the industry, but also how we communicate the good things that are being done in agriculture, I guess. Yeah, that's an important point that I guess we are in a good starting position and it's important to be able to communicate both to farmers and the public at large of what is happening. You know, I guess the livestock emissions that we have they're difficult to reduce and it's important that I suppose the general public understand that and our grass-based production systems are based on having methane to utilize that grass that's out there. So there is a, an information campaign that's important on that, you know, in terms of how we engage in it. And again, from that European perspective, farm to fork is going to raise quite a number of challenges. But again, it's how do we sort of ensure that there is a balanced dialogue between what the consumer wants and what the farmer can provide and ensure we get the right balance that there's an I guess an economic and social fairness within it all as well. Um it's like we could talk about it all day because it's such a, a key intrinsic part of of um Irish agriculture and the work of the department these days. But I suppose to better move on to your current role um as agricultural attache in the embassy in London. Maybe just for those of us who don't know, what exactly is the role of an attaché? 
well, I guess uh, the role of the attaché in London is to try and, I guess it's to provide the person on the ground in London um, to help create contacts between, I guess, my parent department of the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, and its equivalent here in London in terms of uh, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and keeping open dialogue with other stakeholders as well in terms of what changes in policy might be happening here in uh, the UK and ensuring that uh, stakeholders here understand, I suppose, impacts that that might have outside their uh, boundaries and also being able to communicate messages from Dublin to London in terms of what's happening within Ireland in terms of agri-environmental policy or climate policy, for, for example. So it's all about sharing that information and creating a two-way dialogue in terms of um, communication. Okay, and I imagine, I mean, I, I, I think you're only in the job a couple of months, but I'd imagine a key part of it is, is at the moment, is trade and, and Brexit. And I know that the Department of Foreign Affairs has been making significant investments. I think there's a new consulate in Manchester as well, just to make sure to try to mitigate the effect of Brexit. So far, um, you know, this is January, um, Brexit officially happened on, on the 1st, and the trade agreement was agreed uh, on Christmas Eve. Um, what are the most immediate challenges that you've seen? I guess the most immediate ones is uh, it's really it's uh, getting all stakeholders up to speed in terms of the customs checks and sanitary and phytosanitary checks that are required when you're bringing agri-food produce into Ireland. You know, um, there's European standards that are there. UK now is a third country. So how they engage in meeting all the paperwork requirements that are significant. You know, I guess like overall, you know, we were lucky to get the deal on the 24th of December in terms of that uh, common trade agreement, and it has ensured that there's no financial tariffs in place, but like these non-tariff barriers of the paperwork, that can be significant in some quarters. And, you know, how we work with that to ensure everyone is on the, the same page, per se, and understanding what's required and how it's implemented on the ground is important. Do you think... Do you think it would be fair to say that there's an element of surprise um, from the, the UK side in terms of how prepared the EU was to enforce that um, that border? Yeah, I suppose, depending on who you speak to, you know, you get different messages. But yeah, there does seem to be a certain level of unpreparedness by um, the traders in the UK of what was going to be required. You know, I guess it was, there was a lot lost in the political narrative that was going out there of we have a deal you know there's no tariffs there'll be no problems you know and um for traders to understand the non-tariff barrier element in terms of customs was a difficult one but then i guess the fact that you know we had a year to transition but it in the end the food and drinks here industry in the uk would argue they only had four days to prepare you know maybe that's uh, a bit of a cop-out but yeah, it was hard to nail down final decisions on certain elements of what was going to be needed until the trade deal was actually in place. Yeah. And going forward, like, do you see any opportunities arising for the Irish food and drink industry out of Brexit? Well, I guess like overall, you know, the UK is still Ireland's single biggest market for food and drinks, you know. We're very close neighbours geographically. There's a strong understanding between both 
I suppose there's uh, an understanding and credibility to the sustainability credentials that are, are there within our systems. So it will continue to be a very important market. And it's again, it's how we work to maintain those going forward would be important, I suppose, is the biggest opportunity that's within it. Um, I guess, you know, when you look at all the environmental challenges that are there, you know, there's an opportunity, you know, research and implementation on new agro-environmental schemes, how they work for Ireland and UK to collaborate as well in the development of those, that there is a common position as well. Yeah, and certainly it's going to be an interesting space to watch in terms of the UK uh, and their development of their agricultural policies. Yeah, so they have uh, they put in place a new climate act there in November, you know, which I suppose is to replace the common agricultural policy, which you were a part of until uh, the exit of Europe. So it'd be interesting to see now how they create their new support schemes. And, you know, the messaging is it will be all about being for public good. But again, like there's a big challenge in terms of how you scale up, I suppose, the likes of traditional agro-environmental payments ensure that the maximum number of farmers across the UK are engaging within those. And then within the Agriculture Act, it also provides space for the devolved governments of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to do their own thing. So how there is regular tree alignment even within the UK will be interesting to watch as well in terms of how that impacts uh, flows of agri-food products within the UK. So, uh, Yeah, because there's already been an element of... Uh disparity between you know the levels of payments that the farmers have got in england northern ireland and scotland anyway yeah. so uh, as you say the internal the uk system be uh, interesting and then we see of course scotland um trying to pull away from the uk uh, again um and nicola sturgeon talking about another referendum on that front that's exactly it yeah so it'd be interesting to see how it all evolves and you know so again like ireland has a an important role given that we're so close to them that we could be the main communication point into European policy and learning points in terms of how sustainable food systems are developed moving forward so yeah there'll be good opportunities going forward. So I suppose um, you know coming back to your career uh, if, if you were talking to somebody a student who was in their final year in agricultural science why would you recommend DAFM because or the department I should say I mean it is um rather difficult to apply for a job if you don't know what the job is going to be and like as you say you were you accepted the job almost before you knew what it was that's um not an easy thing to wrap your head around i guess no it's not i suppose you know nearly if you people you know graduates today maybe they have an ambition that they want a perfect job straight off the reel i suppose whereas i was looking at it i wanted a job get started and we worked where where we want to optimize you know, what I like best when I get within the department, you know, and I guess that's what I looked at when I was joining the department too. I was willing to accept, you know, a job that mightn't be ideal to start with, knowing that the, the variety of jobs in the department were such that over time I would get to an area that I really would like and would really be able to push on in. You know, I was lucky enough that it was right from the very start, the ball bounced right and I grabbed it and moved on with it every time. So, you know, I would say that there's a certain amount of that in it. You know, what was also nice, maybe looking at the department back at the time, was it was the career outputs. You know, when you look forward to to see your career prospects of moving right up the ranks, what was possible, 
that's very clearly evident when you join the likes of the Department of Agriculture, all the systems that are within place. And I was also very aware of people that had moved to foreign postings, such as where I am now as an attache within London, but there is other posts right across the globe from Washington to uh, Seoul and Tokyo. You know, so like it's, they're interesting opportunities, you know, equally so uh, there's, there's plenty of secondments to work within the European Commission for a period of time as well. And you spent some time in Brussels, it was it six months over there, was it? Yeah, I spent six months blocked there, just a, sort of a training program. But again, it was very insightful to work within DG Environment and see how they looked at progress by member states in relation to nitrates program as well. I was reviewing at the time and to see how fairly they, I suppose, approach a review of every member state in terms of what their actions are to try and ensure fairness and how DG Environment was engaging with DG Agri at the time in terms of agricultural policy. And I suppose, you know, when you see it today now in Farm to Fork, DG Environment and DG Clima have a very strong input into what DG Agriculture can do in terms of the CAP programme itself. So all these things are becoming more integrated as we move forward. That's... Just on, on, on that, like, you know, when, when you're in Brussels or in London or even in, in you know, your, your previous roles in, in the department, like, uh, do you ever find yourself thinking uh, of a useful lecture you had when you were studying agricultural science? Do you ever find yourself flicking back to those times studying agriculture um, and thinking, gosh, yeah, now I see how that works? <laughs> Oh, yeah, all the time. In particular, it was uh, in the early days of my career, I remember working and involved in the destocking of uh, commonages in the west of Ireland and going out and facing farmers of, you know, the reasons, the pros and cons of what was going on here and being able to go out and step into that arena and understanding what lectures had done in landscape management with uh, John Fian. And, uh, yeah, it brought a, a... a sense of real practicality to what was studied and the hard work that was put in and trying to get the grades and move on out of university, but it was all worthwhile in the end. And I would still say today, you know, some of the stuff that I learned within the environmental science stream of uh, the degree course has been very useful, even within climate change. You know, it was, as I say, when I joined climate change um, in 2012, there wasn't much in it that my notes were still very relevant in terms of the Kyoto Protocol was still in place. And that was what we had been reading about in in my university degree. So, yeah, I've made a lot of use of uh, my university notes over time. I will say when I was coming to London, it was a big call made whether, whether they needed to come or not. And did they come? <laughs> Unfortunately not, no. <laughs> <laughs> we limited, so... Uh, um and you know and and moving to London, you were saying this morning you were busy with homeschooling. How do you find the work life balance? Um, you know, over the years, and particularly moving a young family with you to London. Yeah, well, I suppose generally speaking, work life balance within the Department of Agriculture, you know, is very good. You know, we do our nine to five. We go beyond it when necessary. You know, and I have no problem within that. And overall, it balances out. Um, I guess the move to London was a challenge, and I have been very lucky to have a good wife, Siobhan, um, that put also a department. All uh, of them, also a department person, yes. So, yeah, and she had experience as well of going to the Food and Agriculture Organization over ten years ago as well. So, but again, there was big logistic effort in terms of 
packing a bag. When she moved to the FAO, she moved with three boxes. When um, we moved to London, <laughs> we came with literally a, a transport container of goods were <laughs> being shipped over. So yeah, it was some operations move as well as getting kids enrolled in school. And we had, mm-hmm. you know, three of them at a very young age in terms of needing to get into primary school. And that took some effort to get everything lined up for that. Yeah. And you weren't able to come home for, for Christmas with, with the COVID restrictions at the moment. But Yeah. Uh... So yeah, that was the, the first time we hadn't been home for Christmas, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so an unusual experience but again everything worked out Siobhan has family here so that all helped too and you know you get on I suppose the kids also help to ground you in terms of work-life balance of needing to take time out and make sure that they, you meet all their needs in terms of development so that's always uh, good to keep you grounded very good well i think um we are at our time limit i'd love to go on um but it's been really really great having you on the asa podcast john uh, an absolute pleasure and um i hope you stay in touch no problem Odell. lovely to speak to you thank you